When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. You are tuned to Deep Dive. The All Music Books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Our guest today is Lawrence Kirsch, who is a rock and roll photographer and the publisher of two really unique books on Bruce Springsteen. Welcome, Lawrence. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me on today. You once said that your photography is objective. Can you explain what that means? Oh, you've been reading up on me. You probably <laughs> read my, uh, my bio. I did. Well, um, just a little bit of history on my uh, previous career, because I don't work as a music photographer any longer, but from around 1977 to 1989, and for four years before that, I took photos for my own enjoyment at rock concerts. Most of my photography work for different magazines, record companies, rock and roll concert promoters was of live concerts, and I was primarily photographing them uh, you know, not in studio environments, but strictly on stage. So virtually, I, was, I had no influence as to what was going on during the performance. My camera was capturing the show as it unfolded, and nothing was contrived. And I was documenting exactly the same experience the fans were having at the time. So that's basically what I meant by uh, my photography's objective. The fact that I didn't control, I had no control over what, you know, was developing in front of me. Almost like photojournalism. Mm-hmm. It's funny because uh, I did read up on you, and when people have asked you in the past, how did you choose to be a rock and roll photographer, you've replied, I never did, really. It chose me. And I know that feeling well from my work, but how and when did you realize that? Well, as I mentioned previously, I was attending concerts since 1970 and, and wanted the experience to linger on long after the concert was over. So I picked up a camera and started shooting photographs for myself and friends and compiled a small, but I guess an interesting portfolio of of different bands, Uh, you know, starting off with uh, bands varied. I mean, everything from David Bowie to Deep Purple to Jethro Tull. And in fact, the real, I can point to the Rolling Stones in 1972 uh, their Exile on Main Street tour as really the first time I ever photographed a band. And for me, it was just a thrill to have my camera there. But professionally, I was a first-year uh, student at a, in a communications program here in Montreal. And uh, I made friends with this uh, fellow student who had connections to CBS Records. 
that led to an interview and ultimately uh, my first professional gig in 1977, which to this day is probably still one of my most exciting professional jobs. Didn't pay hardly anything, but when I tell you the lineup, I think you'll appreciate that. I witnessed Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe with Rockpile, mm. and Dave Edmonds and Mink DeVille at a very small theater, and that absolutely blew me away. The fact that I was getting paid <laughs> to photograph that show basically said, I, I was saying, wow, I must have won the lottery. Yeah, that must have been one of the uh, stiff records tours then. Yep, yeah. exactly. Yep. You've shot hundreds of bands, including ACDC, you mentioned David Bowie, there's U2, there's Aerosmith, Metallica, and the Rolling Stones, which you mentioned, but one of your pieces on the Stones is in the permanent collection of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, correct? Yep, yeah, absolutely. To be quite frank, I had very little to, to do with that, because in the late 80s, I joined a, a stock photo agency, um, and for those who don't know what that is, Stock photo agencies work with photographers around the world. They license photographs from photographers to place them uh, back then in magazines. You know, this is pre-internet uh, days, but in magazines, newspapers, books, etc., etc. So I was based with an agency called Retina in New York City, licensed a photo for an exhibit, and then it landed up again. You know, had nothing to do with me. Um, uh, other than the fact that I took the photo, and I am very proud for you know any of my images that get included in that type of project. And to be honest, uh, you know, while I was working as a photographer, it was not a lucrative endeavor to say the least. The amount of time and effort and money that I put into my profession was um, was never really properly compensated money-wise. But I was really doing something I truly loved and thrilled to witness so many historic concerts with many of my favorite bands. Many of my friends uh, and acquaintances thought I had the dream job, and, and I wouldn't disagree. I felt I was privileged to be in the position. To be honest, it wasn't until I left photography, uh, you know, the career of photography behind, that I started to have some financial success with the very same clients as I had coming back to me to license my images for tour merchandise such as posters and T-shirts, box sets, books, etc. And in the last five years, I'm thrilled to have worked with the management companies of Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, Metallica, and the creative studios for Rolling Stones, amongst others. So it's sort of come full circle, uh, except now that I'm out of the business, I'm probably enjoying a little bit more success perhaps even a lot more success than I did when I was in the business. Well, you can't go back in time. So if you have those photographs and you have the rights to them, I would guess that they will pay off. Yes. I've seen a lot of your work and it's, it's brilliant. You're a bit modest because you did take all those pictures. Well, thank you. So you mentioned Bruce Springsteen, who you obviously have a, a special affinity for, and you've published two books on. Can I ask, uh, what does Springsteen mean to you? Let me say this. I think the two perspectives I have on Bruce are one and the same. Uh, one is of uh, the performer, which as a performer, I feel that he's compelled to always give 100% of himself in concert. Uh, he knows he's lucky to have achieved all the successes with the incredible support of the fan community. It feels like he needs to um, exhaust his physical capacity each time on stage, uh, as it might be his last concert. So you just go see this performer, leave it all out there. I mean, you. You've heard that sort of as an athletic 
uh, analogy, you know, to leave it all, uh-huh. all out on the field or the ice or the court or whatever. But Bruce is doing this time and time again. And the other perspective I have on Bruce is the integrity as a person. I mean, the time and money he devotes to various causes, charities, fundraisers, it's almost non-comparable. I mean, if you think of other artists or performers, people, you know, in his position, and when I say in his position, there's not a big difference other than the the huge amount of wealth that he's collected over the years. But, you know, he knows that it's the fans that have permitted him to do that, to have his quality of life, and uh, he respects that. He absolutely respects that and is always giving back as much as possible. So I find that to be um, just a very, uh, you know, extremely uh, likable in in anybody, and specifically Bruce, who basically has been entertaining us for about five decades now. And it's interesting. You mentioned, you know, anybody who's seen Bruce knows you're right. He gives 100% and he leaves it all out there. So he's earned that respect. You know, he doesn't take the shortcuts, and the fans certainly respond to that. Do you remember your first Springsteen concert? Oh, Steve, how could I forget? (laughs) (laughs) I attended my first Springsteen concert on December the 19th, 1975. It was with uh, my cousin Harold from Queens, New York. (laughs) Middle of winter, freezing cold in Montreal. He had come up just to uh, hang out with me. You know, I had um, found out a a little bit about Bruce uh, starting in 1974. Basically, just hearing him on the local radio station, didn't really think too much of him. And then, of course, in 75, Born to One was released. He has the cover of um, Time Magazine and Newsweek. Right. I mean, of course, there was a lot of hype behind Born to Run. You know, this is the new Dylan. This is the old Dylan. This is the best thing rock and roll has ever seen. And the local FM radio station certainly was getting on that bandwagon and hyping, you know, Bruce Springsteen is coming to, um, uh, he was coming to a small theater in Montreal. Like I said, my cousin was in town. We figured, hey, let's, you know, why don't we just take a flyer and see if we can get a couple of tickets and go and see this guy. So we did. You know, I can use the cliche, that night changed my life. It didn't change my life. But it certainly opened my eyes to what the rock and roll experience can be. So this is 1975. I've already been witnessing a lot of the bands that I mentioned. And now I'm in the theater, and it's dark. And the piano player, for those uh, fans who know who uh, the, uh, the piano player is, that's Roy Bitten. And Bruce walk onto stage in the dark. There's just one blue solitary spotlight on Roy, on the piano player, not even on Bruce. Mm. And they started with an acoustic version of Thunder Road. And I had never seen an opening to a concert like that. You know, usually it was bombastic. And here is one of the most dramatic openings I have ever seen. And for the next over three hours, his interaction with the audience the stories that he told. I had never seen anybody tell any stories. I mean, you're lucky to get a hello, Montreal, hello, Boston, hello, New York City. Good to be here tonight. And, you know, that could have been the extent of the interaction or at least, you know, the um, conversation from the band with the audience. And here is a, a performer who's talking about growing up in New Jersey 
his relationships with his parents, uh, just unbelievable. Oh, he even talked about how cold it was in Montreal. I mean, you know, so he was experiencing exactly what the fans were experiencing. My cousin and I left the uh, theater exhausted, knowing that we had just seen something extremely special. I have to tell you, he still delivers that same experience today. What is it, 45 years later? Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. I know that version of Born to Run because it opens the Live at Hammersmith Odeon record, and it remains one of my favorite kind of reimaginings of a song. It's just devastating. I'm jealous that you got to see that, but good for you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I missed that tour in Miami. Uh, I was younger and didn't go, and I still kick myself. Boston Garden in 1980, back-to-back nights for the river would be my first, and that was a great tour. Let's talk about your Bruce books. There are two, For You and The Light and Darkness, and they're an an utterly unique approach in that, you know, kind of what you've been talking about, it's fans' offerings and experiences from photographs to stories. How did you come up with that approach? Well, that's a good question. I was seeing a lot of Springsteen concerts from 75 on, Although I have to tell you that in 76 and 77, Bruce didn't really leave the U.S. He came up to Toronto for one or two concerts, as I recall, but not to Montreal. You know, I sort of lost track of him. From 78 onwards, I was attending concerts throughout Canada, primarily on the east coast of the U.S., and I always felt jealous of anyone who lived on the eastern seaboard of the U.S., because within... Well, a two-hour drive any direction, you had um, shows in Connecticut, you had shows in Massachusetts, you had shows New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, you know, all the hot spots for Bruce. And literally, you could jump in your car and within two hours, maybe three hours, see him perform in clubs, in theaters, in, in of course, in 78, starting in arenas, and then, you know, up until, and then in 1984 and 85 with Born in the USA. Stadiums. So I attended so many concerts and I kept on meeting fans in all these shows that uh, we shared an, a, an incredible sense of a shared community, whether I met them in person uh, or through correspondence or later on, of course, uh, via emails. We all had the same thing in common an undeniable love and I guess appreciation of Bruce's music and the person himself. So what I thought was missing was. Um, a touchstone that fans could contribute to and ultimately turn to to understand that they weren't alone in their love uh, and passion for this great songwriter and human being, but there was a, an incredible underground fan community, and I thought, how can I connect this fan community? I mean, this is before Facebook groups and before Twitter and before... Uh, you know, uh, there were chat groups. I mean, um, this isn't pre-internet because the book goes back 12 years ago, and there was certainly internet back then. First of all, I really wanted a, a vehicle for fans from the very beginning, you know, from the early 70s, for them to be able to connect. You know, when he exploded to a huge audience through his Born in the USA world tour, selling out football stadiums and football stadiums in Europe, And so that's what I set out to do. I set out to make that connection between Bruce fans uh, worldwide. Well, it's an amazing book. And for you is original stories and photographs by Bruce Springsteen's legendary fans. And that, as you mentioned, was published in 2007. 
and I think it sold out in 2009. That's right. I recently saw it on an Amazon auction for 500 bucks. This is the one where it's from Steel Mill up to like 2007. Yeah. And now you're doing a limited edition reprint, right? That's right. We are, and I'm glad you you mentioned the um, the full title of the book because, of course, CZ and even I do. I refer to the book as just for you, which was one of my favorite Bruce songs. But in the full title, we mentioned Bruce's legendary fans, and that's what the book is. It is a book by the fans for the fans. I mean, that's become a cliche as well now, but literally, you can't be any more precise than that in terms of the title, in terms of what this book is all about. So we are doing a small reprint of 1,100 copies. It's a limited edition. It has all the amazing photographs, as the first edition did. It has over 200 incredible stories, and it is only available online through the website at foryoubrucebook.com. So it's all one word, foryoubrucebook.com. And uh, you mentioned that uh, the book is selling on Amazon, and I checked it out on eBay. I just want to be very clear. I have nothing to do with the (laughs) sale of those books. Those are fans, maybe purported fans, who purchased the book when it was first available in 2008, 2009, they're selling the book because of its rarity. Now, listen, I don't know if they're getting those prices, but this book, the new one, the reprint, I'm certain will go a long way to bringing those prices down (laughs) because now that it's available, there's no reason to spend anywhere near $500. In fact, if you go to foryoubruce.com, you'll see that the book, you know, it is a limited edition, so we can't charge you know, what um, a Barnes & Noble, you know, might charge who, you know, when a book is printed in 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 copies, it's available worldwide. This is a hardcover coffee table book produced with love, great integrity, professionalism, but it is only 1,000 copies. You'll see that I believe that the price is reasonable. Uh, all the prices quoted there include shipping. We're looking at getting this out in the middle of December. I would like to point out for all the Bruce fans out there that this is an ideal present. You know, I have the second book. It's beautiful. I missed out on the first printing. Uh, Right now, fans can go there and pre-order the book, correct? They can order it, but I cannot guarantee that they're going to get it for Christmas. The book is in production right now. Right now, I'm not in a position to guarantee that it can be um, received uh, or ordered for Christmas. We're trying our best to do that. And I have to say that this is for North American, Canadian, and U.S. orders only. Unfortunately, the book will not be available for European orders in time for Christmas. Shortly thereafter, I hope. If things happen to change, check the website every other day or whatever, and we'll certainly create a big flasher saying, you know, book available for Christmas, etc., but right now, all I can say is, is that it'll be available sometime in December. Is there any new material in this edition? No. As I mentioned, this is an exact reprint of the first book. So what I can say is that technology has progressed in terms of printing uh, quality and, and the process. So the book looks even better than when it did at the original version. There's some cosmetic changes, but for all intents and purposes, it's the exact same book with the same photographs and the same great heartwarming stories. 
Yeah. And, you know, we, I tended to dwell on the photography, but the stories are incredible and it's a perfect fan base to do a project like this because anybody who has Bruce fans in their lives, they love to share and tell their stories. How did you edit through all the submissions? Was it just you doing that? No way. I mean, uh, although I have to tell you that I read every single story that we received, which was over 1,500 stories. Some were a paragraph, some were two lines, and some were like a full page. Now, when I created the website for youbrucebook.com and asked people to send in their stories, I did give everybody a limit of only... Let me think back. I believe it was 300 or 350 words. Mm. However, if someone really felt limited by that number, I did receive some emails from some fans saying, listen, I have a story. There's no way I can tell it in 350 words. Could I submit more? And invariably, yeah, I always (laughs) said yes. We narrowed it down to about two or 300. And when I say we, I hired a professional editor. She was not a Springsteen fan. She wasn't uh, negative against Bruce. So she basically was strictly looking at it from a punctuation, a grammar. My main and first instruction to the editor was this. Read this story. Do not change the voice of the person who is submitting this story. And she did. Mm. And then I would read those stories four times each again. And then we were able to uh, narrow it down to just over 200 stories. That was probably the hardest part of the book for me um, because I'm not a writer by any stretch of the imagination. And for me to select those stories, first of all, we had a lot more than 200 that were great, so to narrow it down. But I have to say that I believe that uh, there's enough stories in there of various topics and themes that will please uh, just about everybody in terms of a fan uh, contribution. Do you have a favorite story you want to recount, or do you want to leave that for the uh, people to discover on their own? It's interesting when people ask me that question, because remember, these are not my stories. Right, right. So, and, you know, with over 200, so many pop out at me. I mean, one of the most emotional and poignant stories in the book was written by a fan, uh, Brenda Van Horn. And she tells a very touching story about how she lost her son in a car accident and how the words from Bruce's album, The Rising, gave her the strength to express her sorrow and helped her start to heal. These stories touched you on so many different levels. A Seattle music fan, Glenn Boyd, recounts his experience attending Springsteen's first Seattle show in 1975 at the Paramount Theater, and a friend had given him a free ticket to see, quote-unquote, the future of rock and roll, and Boyd writes, not since I saw the Beatles on TV as a seven-year-old boy has a single rock and roll performance left such a lasting impact on me. Oh, here's one of my favorite stories. It's the shortest story in the book submitted by Cliff Brenning, who contributed some amazing original photography to the book. And he recounts a very amusing experience uh, trying to score a ticket to a Bruce show in 1974 at the State Theater in New Brunswick, uh, New Jersey. Cliff writes, I'll never forget calling for directions to the State Theater early in the week. The pre-recorded voice message started with the lineup for the week. Tuesday night, triple X movies. (laughs) Wednesday night, triple X movies. Thursday night, triple X movies. And Friday night, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) 
I I just wow. love that. I'm yeah. short and extremely amusing. So there you see an extremely varied selection of stories that can be found in For You. You actually got to present a copy of this book to Springsteen, didn't you? I did. That in itself was a story. Now, I first gave Bruce's head of security, and this was in 2008 in Boston. I met with him and was able to give him a book. I was told that if I included my address, Bruce would sign it and, and get it back to me. Amazingly, it was sent to me from the hotel that Bruce had stayed at. The book was signed by Bruce and sent to me directly. So that was the first time. In March, when Bruce came to Montreal, I was extremely, extremely fortunate to get an invitation and uh, was a guest in, um, in their suite before the concert. We were talking, there was wine available, and you know it was a very relaxing atmosphere. And then all of a sudden, Bruce appeared just before the show. He was very gracious. He came in, he posed for photographs, started to look through the book, and he asked me um, what inspired me to do the book. And I basically told him the same thing, you know, that I mentioned to you. And and the fact that this book was sort of like um, a gift to him, uh, you know, as a repayment for all the amazing years and albums that he's given us during his career. So I'm, I'm having this conversation with Bruce. I mean, it only lasted maybe about five minutes or so. And he's literally standing in the doorway of the uh, of the suite, sort of halfway in, halfway out. During this time, literally around the corner, I can't see them, but I hear Miami Steve, Nils Rofkin, and maybe another uh, member of the E Street Band, they are rehearsing Because the Night a cappella. So I'm hearing this, and I'm trying to concentrate on what Bruce is saying to me, And these guys are just rehearsing around the corner, and I'm going, what's going on here? This is like a Twilight Zone kind of thing. It was was just unbelievable how overwhelmed I was with all these things hitting my senses. Bruce in front of me, talking to me about my book, talking to me about the fans, and then around the corner, private little rehearsal of the band. It, It was an amazing, amazing experience. Wow. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're talking to Lawrence Kirsch, who is the publisher of two incredible Bruce Springsteen books. One is called For You, Original Stories and Photographs by Bruce Springsteen's Legendary Fans. That's sold out, but there is a reprint. And then there's also The Light in Darkness, which you published in 2009. It's the same format, but it focuses exclusively on the darkness of the Edge of Town tour. And that was, of course, a watershed moment for Bruce and he looked great. You know, he's got that 50s thing going on and clean shaven and, and eminently photographable. That book is a little bit different, correct? I mean, same format, but it's... Well, same format, except it focuses on one year in Bruce's life. The one thing that The Light and Darkness has that For You didn't is it has some memorabilia, ticket stubs, some posters from the tour, radio station uh, posters, the famous billboard that Bruce got up uh, in Los Angeles and uh, did a little... Uh, art directing, yeah. Yeah, a little art directing, exactly. But unfortunately, that book is totally sold out and hasn't been available since oh, about 2012. Oh, wow. Well, I'm glad I got a copy. <laughs> One of the things I want to mention is we talk about these fan photographs, and they're phenomenal. We're not talking blurry things. I'm, I'm guessing most of the people had brought in a 35 mil camera or something like that, correct? Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, because back then, that's all there was. You know, if you had a Kodak Instamatic, there's no way you're going to be able to catch any live performances on a stage. So, no, these uh, these fans, they brought in some serious equipment. Right. Uh, in the early days, and what I'm referring to in the early days is like 74 to, say, 78, there weren't really too many restrictions in terms of fans bringing in their own cameras. Certainly, if you were sitting in your seat and you weren't blocking anyone's view or, you know, you weren't causing any undue attention to yourself, you could sit in your seat, third row, fifth row in the balcony and photograph the whole concert and no one would say boo to you. <laughs> Starting in the early 80s with the advent of MTV, the, the managers and handlers and PR people, and whatever, and record labels wanting to control the image you know, rock and roll became extremely... Brand conscious, right? Yes, brand conscious. That's a great way of putting it. All of a sudden, you know, you started seeing on tickets, uh, no cameras, recording equipment, etc. allowed. But even when I started working and, and got photo passes, typically I was able to photograph a half a show, a full concert, whatever. But then, like I mentioned, in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, there was a big switch and now the photographers were reduced to only being able to take the first three songs of every show. I made note of one photograph from this book that really stood out to me, and it's from the Toronto Maple Leaf Garden shows. Oh, yeah. Of the Darkness on the Edge of Town tour. It's the perspective and content that really, really stood out to me. It's shot at eye level, and it's very close to the stage. And you can only see Bruce from the knees down. 
But behind him are three women, and one's dancing. One's got just a huge smile on her face, and the other has her eyes just transfixed on Bruce with her mouth open. It was just a perfect distillation of the live Bruce experience, you know, and, and that the fact that there aren't really any barriers or there weren't any barriers to that experience. Yeah, it's interesting you selected that one. I, I think it really exemplifies the spirit and the um, fan adulation that these people who who go to concerts have for Bruce. I remember choosing that photo, and it, it's taken by um, a really good friend of mine who has umpteen photos of Bruce and Clarence, the band and whatever. This one photo really captures the connection between Bruce and his fans, even though you can't even see Bruce's face. Exactly. I feel like that photo speaks volumes and it's not a traditional type photo. And it's also a time long ago because, you know, I noticed that one of the women has her hand on the stage. There's zero space between the performer and the audience, which, you know, is how it used to be if you were lucky to catch a performer in that kind of venue. But those days are gone. They're gone, except with Bruce. <laughs> even on the last tour, Bruce at whatever he was, 67 or so, this guy is body surfing. Right. Never mind hands on stage. Hands on Bruce. We're talking hands on Bruce. <laughs> and how much more up close and personal can you get than that? Fans wait for Born to Run, where Bruce stands as close to the audience as he can get, and fans play his guitar. <laughs> All the hands are on his guitar. And I'm sure some people are groping his leg and, and, and what have you. 99.9% of all concerts, there is that wall between the performer and his or her audience. But with Bruce, it doesn't exist. Physical and metaphorical. Exactly. I have to ask you, you mentioned For You, you mentioned Point to Run. Do you have a favorite Bruce song? It always has been Badlands. It always will be Badlands. That song just sums up Bruce. Since that came out in 78, without question, it, it has to be Badlands. And what about a favorite album? If you choose Badlands, it has to be Darkness. For me. It's a good one. I think Tunnel of Love is also criminally underrated. but uh... No, I was going to say, and you know, I mean, depending on when you were born, depending on when you first experienced Bruce, you might choose Born in the USA or something after that. And what about his first three albums? I mean, you know... Uh, I might land on uh, The Wild, The Innocent. There you go. So you, your photography also was recently the cover for an archival live album from a December 20th, 1980 Nassau Coliseum show. You can imagine my surprise and thrill when I got the email from uh, CBS Records saying, and I quote, Bruce has chosen one of <laughs> your photos to be the cover of you know the next Nugs live release. Are you interested? Well, let me think about that for a nanosecond. Right. Yes, I am interested. Wow. I was so proud and, and pleased. It really was one of my proudest moments. I mean, I have had some photographs in the last Riverbox set. Sony has used my photos for uh, an exclusive uh, limited edition uh, T-shirt that was only sold in Rome at the Circus Maximus. Mm -hmm. The River Tour in 2016, a couple of my photos were used for uh, the posters and the after the concert show, you know, like the stream. I have had a bit of a history with working with Bruce's creative team, but this was just amazing. I mean, uh, I, again, I mean, I'm talking to you. I have this incredible smile on my face. <laughs> 
you know, I love that photo. I remember that concert. To have that photo chosen and by Bruce himself was just one of the best moments in my career. Yeah, that's got to be incredibly satisfying. We're speaking with Lawrence Kirsch. He's the publisher of For You and The Light and Darkness, two singular Bruce Springsteen books. Everybody should check them out, or at least For You, which is being reprinted. But you're also involved in another project. It's a similar concept of shared fan experiences, and it's called That Night at Massey Hall, which celebrates Toronto and perhaps Canada's most famous concert venue. What can you tell us about that book? There's a direct Springsteen connection to that book. Ten years ago, a fan uh, got a hold of me. They had the For You book. The Light and Darkness hadn't been released yet. The fan's name is uh, David Binks, and he expressed to me that he loved the concept of the book, and he said he, he had the idea to do a similar type of book, and would I be interested in teaming up with him in terms of doing it? So he piqued my interest, and then he sort of threw me for a loop when he said, well, the book wouldn't be dedicated to an artist, but it would be dedicated to a concert hall. And David is originally from England, living in Toronto. He started going to concerts at Massey Hall, which is, I guess, the best way to equate it and give people a sense of what the hall is, is to, uh, you know, compare it to, let's say, Carnegie Hall. Mm. He wanted to create a book dedicated to the hall where fans would submit uh, photographs and stories of seeing concerts, but not only concerts, lectures, political rallies, comedy shows, anything that went on under the roof, let's say, in the last 70 to 80 years. We started a website, uh, which is www.thatnightatmasseyhall.com. But, I mean, you know, if you're a fan of, like I said, U2, of, I mean, Van Halen has played there, ACDC has played there, Patti Smith has played there. Duke Ellington and Pavarotti. <laughs> Duke Ellington, Pavarotti, Leonard Cohn, Winston Churchill gave talks there, Gershwin. It totally runs the gamut for all genres of music. And we're going through the same process as we did with the two Springsteen books. If anyone has any concert programs, just this past week, a woman sent us a photocopy of a concert program that her father played in Massey Hall in 1925. Wow. I mean, it blew me away that she still had this and was able to recount story about how her father played Massey Hall. I love these projects because it combines three of my biggest passions, which is music, photography, and books. Well, that is awesome. And we're going to leave that right there. I'd like to thank you, Lawrence. Lawrence Kirsch, he's the publisher of For You and The Light and Darkness. For You is being reprinted. You can buy that at foryoubrucebook.com. And if anybody out there has any Massey Hall photos or tales, you can contribute to thatnightatmasseyhall.com. All right. Well, thank you very much, Lawrence. Maybe we can have you back on for the Massey Hall book. And good luck, you know, with the For You book. I'm sure that will be sold out soon. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate your time today, Steve. Great speaking with you. You too, Lawrence. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. And you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. 
We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.